Welcome, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast. We are honored to have Dr. Michael Davison join us to discuss recent and advanced aspects related to omega-3 fatty acids and cardiovascular disease. Dr. Davison is a cardiologist who holds the position of clinical professor of medicine, and he is also the director of the lipid clinic at the University of Chicago. He has worked extensively in the field of lipidology and atherosclerosis with a focus on fatty acids. He's been involved with over 1,000 clinical trials and published over 350 articles and books. Dr. Davison, welcome, and thank you for participating in the podcast on the topic of omega-3 fatty acids and cardiovascular health. Thank you, Peggy. Happy to be here. Dr. Davison, the topic of fish oils and cardiovascular risk reduction is of huge interest to our listeners, but boy, it seems to be an area of great controversy. Can you explain why there's such debate regarding whether fish oil supplements are beneficial or not for heart disease prevention? Sure. I mean, I, the, the the story goes back to the the 1980s, actually, where you know researchers in Denmark discovered that Greenland Eskimos who eat a, um, a very high fat diet have very low rates of heart disease, and they implicated omega three fatty acids as the potential beneficial ingredient in their diet, and uh, they then went forward and, and looked at um, some of the aspects of omega-3s and found that it did have a, no, no, a number of important properties. It lowers triglycerides as a lipidologist. That's a key thing for me. It affects uh, inflammation and thrombosis, and, um, and that led to a whole school of research into omega-3 fatty acids. Then came the uh, uh, the GISI and JELUS trials showing that low doses of omega-3s were associated with cardiovascular benefits in an Italian and uh, Japanese population, respectively. Uh, and then, however, additional research, the ORIGIN trial, the GISI-2, um, the ASCEND, a number of other trials using low doses of omega-3s, like one gram a day, you know, failed to show a benefit. And that led to concerns about, you know, in the modern era when people are on statins and aspirin and things like that, do we in fact um, see a cardiovascular benefit? I think one of the key messages about all the research that's been done over the last 30 years is that you have to achieve a certain level of omega-3s to have a cardiovascular benefit. And that's where it's important to understand that we're just giving one gram a day on top of a very high fat diet or, or on a very low background of omega-3 intake, you're unlikely to see a benefit. And that's why it's important to understand that we're trying to achieve a threshold of omega-3 levels that are associated with the benefit. You have to use either higher doses or combined supplementation with eating a high omega-3 rich diet. You mentioned eating a diet high in omega-3s. What does that look like? What do you recommend for your patients? Um, <clears throat> the... Um, the, the key uh, omega-3 diet uh, foods are, 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 are cold water fish, so salmon, sardines, tuna, mackerel. Uh, those are the ones that have the highest amounts of omega-3 fatty acids. I think one other foods, ingredients that, that might have omega-3s in high, high amounts are like walnuts or um, uh, foods like that, some, uh, some other nuts flaxseed, and so forth. But those are the uh, shorter-chain omega-3 fatty acids. And how much gets converted to 
the longer chain omega-3s is really dependent on some genomic factors. And so in general, most people cannot convert the shorter chain omega-3s to the longer chain omega-3s where the benefit has been established. So it's important to, to know that not all omega-3s are the same when it comes to potential cardiovascular benefit. And what we now understand is it's the longer chain omega-3s from, from, the, from the fish oils that we, we see the greatest potential for cardiovascular benefit. The longer chain omega-3 fatty acids from fish oils are the ones that give us the most cardiovascular benefit. That was a topic of discussion at the last American Heart Association meeting, and they released the results of the REDUCE-IT study. What did that study tell us, and how is it different from the previous trials? REDUCE-IT was very important because it was in a population already on statins with high triglycerides, and it showed that four grams of a pure EPA resulted in a very robust cardiovascular benefit, a 25% relative risk reduction, almost a 4% absolute risk reduction, which is a quite powerful effect. What was confusing about the trial uh, was the mechanism of the benefit. Was it triglyceride lowering or was it EPA raising? And you can make an argument for either of those benefits from this trial. And so, uh, and from my perspective, I don't think each one alone explains the benefit, but together we saw this very, very powerful effect of giving high doses of, of EPA, eicosapentaenoic acid, on reducing cardiovascular events in a higher triglyceride population. So in your clinical practice, how do you prescribe omega-3? Do you use EPA, EPA only? Right now I do. I actually look at omega-3 levels, and I think that... Uh, we could look at it either in the plasma or in the red blood cell, and those tell you a little bit different type of information. The red blood cell is a longer uh, effect of omega-3 consumption. The, the, the plasma levels are, are shorter duration. But in the uh, JELUS trial, it was the plasma level that showed the, the benefit in, in this Japanese population. You had, you had to achieve an, an EPA level over about 100 uh, micrograms per milliliter, which in the United States, the baseline level is about 10 or 20, just to kind of give you a frame of reference. So a tenfold higher increase in EPA compared to the U.S. population. In the reduced trial, they used plasma levels and got to that over 100 threshold. So I think plasma levels have, have now been kind of validated as a measurement of EPA that has been associated with cardiovascular benefit now in two trials, the JELUS trial and the uh, REDUCE-IT trial. So I do look at EPA levels themselves as a marker of potential cardiovascular benefit and try to shoot for that over 100 micrograms per milliliter level to ascertain that the patient's omega-3 intake is adequate. Now, the bigger question is, in my mind, is it EPA only or is it DHA, you know, acid? I like both, actually. I like, I like both EPA and DHA. I prefer the complex mixture, but to be honest, you know, we now have evidence of EPA only having a benefit. So I, I, I have now considered that in my, in my decision-making. We have one more trial called STRENGTH coming out in about a year from now, which is both a, a EPA and DHA complex mixture. And if that shows a benefit, then I think we can look at both EPA and DHA as having cardiovascular 
protective benefits. Well, DHA is important for a lot of patients that have diabetes and cognitive impairment, retinal issues and such. Do you prescribe DHA at all for these types of patients? I like DHA a lot. I think that the, the data regarding DHA on all these different other benefits like cognitive impairment, uh, fatty liver, those kind of things, I think is very intriguing. And I, I think it has potential, uh, I, I, I think, to be, again, you know, fair to the evidence. It's not quite the level of evidence where you're, you're, you're going to recommend it widely. But I, but I personally believe that that fatty acid has a lot of clinical value. And so I do use it in patients when they do have you know, risk for Alzheimer's disease or evidence of fatty liver. I'll use DHA supplementation to get those levels up as well to help improve potential outcomes for my patients. Earlier, you mentioned that some patients have difficulty converting the short-chain fatty acids to the beneficial longer-chain fatty acids due to their genetics. You were referring to the polymorphisms in the fat genes. How do those genes have clinical relevance in how we prescribe omega-3 fatty acids for our patients? Uh, what's very important to know is that genetically, people convert shorter-chain fatty acids to longer-chain fatty acids differently. And so some people can convert alpha-linolenic acid, which is the, the vegetable-based, vegetable you know, nut-based omega-3 to the longer chain. It goes to fatty acid very well. Others are very poor converters. Um, so fads is a lot more important than people realize. These are fatty acid desaturase enzymes that convert short-chain to long-chain fatty acids. And, and people have different rates of conversion. And so, for example, Hispanics are very poor converters, and they have a lot of fatty liver and diabetes. African-Americans are strong converters, but they convert also high amounts of arachidonic acid production, leading to hypertension and increased thrombosis. Omega-3 supplementation can help both of those type of fads, polymorphisms. So it's important to know that. I think it's still in the research realm right now, but once they become, once they become much more available, we'll have a lot more information about how we can use genomics to identify which patients are more likely to benefit from omega-3 fatty acid supplementation. When the genetics are available to help us identify patients with polymorphisms, besides fish oil, is there any way clinically to help them upregulate the enzymes needed to convert the short chain to long chain fatty acids? You know, not that we know of. I mean, that's the thing. Okay. It's not... We don't have a, a an enzyme stimulator um, as of yet, but uh, but clearly it's something to think about in the future for for therapeutics. But but right now that those genomic uh, polymorphisms are are very important. Uh, we don't have them readily available to measure, but I think it's an exciting frontier looking at nutrigenomics, something that can help guide you know what type of omega three supplementation is important for a specific patient based on their genomics. It certainly is an exciting future when it comes to genomics. I wonder if you could take a moment to tell us how you use the Boston Heart Fatty Acid Balance Test in your practice. What does it tell you, and how does it guide your therapeutic recommendations? Yeah, so, so it has a lot of value because it's uh, it's a plasma level. It can tell you the kind of the short term dietary effects that the patient has. It's a good check on how they're doing from a diet perspective because it gives you all the different fatty acids, saturated fat, 
monounsaturated fat, omega-3 fatty acids. So it's a really good kind of tool to use for dietary counseling information. That's one aspect of it. The other, of course, is looking at omega-3 levels themselves, the plasma levels, which now we know from the both the JELOS trial and the reducer trial are associated with cardiovascular benefits. So it's actually a a surrogate for looking about how we measure omega-3 levels in the blood and how we can use that to use supplementation to ascertain whether we're getting those levels high enough of a threshold where we know there's a cardiovascular benefit achieved in these two different trials. Great. Thank you. Well, you certainly have given us a ton of practical information today. Let me see if I can summarize some of the most important points. Let's see, you talked about specifically two trials, both done on plasma. The first was the JELOS trial, where the cardiovascular benefit was demonstrating at an EPA level greater than 100 milligrams per deciliter. The second trial was the REDUCA trial that used EPA only at 4 grams a day in a population who were on statins and already had elevated triglycerides. And that trial demonstrated a 25% relative risk reduction and almost a 4% absolute risk reduction. You made the point that different people eat different diets and supplementation with long-chain fatty acids may be necessary, but in differing amounts. You discussed how the fat gene polymorphisms influence the conversion of short-chain fatty acids to the desired longer-chain fatty acids, and you discussed the use of lab testing with your patients to assess if they were at therapeutic EPA levels. Is there anything else you'd like to add that be clinically important for our listeners today? I think the most important message is that um, that one gram of dietary supplements may not be adequate, and so that's, that's important. Everyone eats a different background of omega-3s. And so I think when you're thinking about using omega-3s for cardiovascular benefit, you need to think about the dose and the levels that you achieve. And those are very important issues where we're thinking about how we can best modify risk in our patients. Dr. Davison, it's been such a pleasure to have you join us. Thank you for taking time to share your clinical expertise. I'm sure our listeners enjoyed all of your comments. Well, thank you all for joining. Stay tuned for our podcast on Health Matters, series in the future. Bye for now.